0: Welcome, Casey. Uh, hi Hi. <laughs> Casey's joining us from Benchling, which is a service for people working in the lab to provide electronic lab notebooks along with a variety of molecular um, biology tools and many other new things I'm sure they're working on. Um, so Casey, why don't you get us started by giving us a bit of an introduction as to what you do at Benchling?
1: Sure. Uh, So my name is Casey Kraft, and I am a team lead on the professional services team at Benchling. So I lead a team of implementation managers and consultants. And basically, we're the team that when someone signs on for Benchling, we get the really fun part of the job because we're the ones who actually implement the software for them, so we get to talk to them about their science and then help put together a custom solution for them. So I tease the sales team all the time that they have to do all the work and we get to have all the fun.
0: <laughs> I love that. And Benchling was started how long ago? Probably about 10 years? 2012. Ago? OK, 2012, so about seven years ago. And it, mm-hmm. it was started by a scientist out of MIT. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, there were a couple, uh, a couple MIT scientists, and they, uh, as the story goes, you know, they were so excited for their lab experience, and like I'm sure many people can relate to, they got into the lab and saw that so much of what goes on the lab happens in notebooks, on paper, a bunch of Excel sheets, and sending emails uh, back and forth, and so they just had this idea that there had to be a better way and that's where the idea of benchling was born
0: amazing and and as a scientist on the bench side it's certainly a really valuable service like when I started at the bench we were working out of paper notebooks and now Mm -hmm. um you know whether it's benchling or some other electronic lab notebook I think a lot of labs on the academic and uh pharma or biotech side are moving towards this kind of uh record-keeping. So it's certainly a a valuable service. So can you tell us about your path to benching, like how you first heard about it and um, what kind of drew you to working there?
1: Yeah. So I, uh, well, initially when I, uh, I had heard the name sort of thrown around and then I was, uh, I was approached by a recruiter. Uh, to join the team, but I actually started at the bench myself. So I, uh, I went to grad school for pharmacology. So I have a PhD in molecular pharmacology from the University of Pittsburgh. And I had this idea that I wanted to be an academic scientist and I that was just all I wanted to do. And I, so I did the traditional route uh, I finished graduate school, and then I went on uh, to do a postdoc. And while I, was, uh, while I was a postdoc, I sort of had that inevitable moment we all have where it's, what do I want to do with my life? <laughs> and um, I was fortunate enough that throughout my graduate career and throughout my uh, postdoc career, I had done a lot of microscopy and most of my work used it as a tool. And right around the time that my postdoc was winding up a position opened up at the University of Maryland where I was for a core facility manager. And I thought that sounded kind of fun. And so I I applied and, and I got it. And it was my first taste of doing science without necessarily getting dirty so to speak and um i'd always loved bench work but then i got to see what it was like to help other people do their bench work and i was hooked And that was just the moment where I was like, okay, this is what I'm meant to do. And so in the core facility, basically I would run trainings for people and I would teach people how to use the microscopes. I would provide support for their experiments, help them tweak settings, get the best possible images. And uh, it was a lot of fun. And then I was approached by the company. So Zeiss came to me and said, we have a position in our internal support team that we'd like you for. And so I, that was where I crossed over from academia to uh, now not even working on in industry, because so often they tell us when we're in grad school, well, you can do academic research or you can do industry research. But there's this whole other world and that was my first step into that. So, working for a company where my job was helping scientists. And so, while I was at Zeiss, I worked in the internal support team. And then I moved, after a couple of years, I moved uh, up to Harvard, where I was an embedded specialist for Zeiss at Harvard in an imaging facility there. And that was like being a kid in a candy store because pretty much every day someone new was coming in through the door with an interesting application or something I'd never looked at before. And uh, so that was just a joy. And then uh, after several years there, I transitioned to a new role where I was doing kind of the same thing, but now all over the country. So I was doing a lot of traveling, talking to a lot of different scientists and... It was, uh, it was so much fun.
0: And that, was that the, would that be called a field application specialist? That's exactly right. Okay. Yep.
1: Field application scientist was my title.
0: Can you talk a little bit about what that role is like? Because I see, I mean, there's so many companies like Zeiss out there mm-hmm. um, that utilize this type of role, field application scientist, to um, help customers with their products, which is obviously really. Helpful feature of any of these um, these companies because you have somebody on the ground there um, mm-hmm. helping you utilize whether it's a consumable or a microscope. Um, so yeah, if you could talk about like what that role is actually like because I, I have never done it, but I certainly know a few mm-hmm. um, application scientists. So,
1: and you know, it's one of those secret treasures of working in science. And these are the kinds of positions that I never knew existed when when I was in uh, an undergrad with academic stars in my eyes. But basically, so the the function of the field application scientist, and this isn't, uh, there's a little bit of, um, some companies they have a sales function, some companies they're purely for after sales. Function. So it depends on what company you're talking about. My role did not have a sales function. So, as a field application scientist, what would happen is uh, a customer would buy a microscope. They'd have to wait for it to be built. Then it would be delivered. The service engineer would come unpack it, put it together. If it was a complicated system, otherwise, I might be the one to put it together. And Then um, it was my role to validate the instrument, make sure it was performing within specs, test it out, um, just kind of do some preliminary work on it just so that the user had a starting point. And then my role was to talk to the scientists, find out what they needed to do and teach them how to do it. So in my role at Zeiss, I spent most of my time talking about optical physics and taking really pretty pictures.
0: So were you excited moving to a company like Benchling where this passion for essentially helping more scientists do what they're trying to do, um, in my eyes, is broadened even further by a tool like Benchling where it's not just microscopy that you're helping with, it's all of these different functions. Were you were you excited about
1: that? Oh, I, I can't even tell you how much. Because the, <laughs> the thing that really f- has always fired me up about science and just what hooked me when I was a kid was just learning something new every day. And I actually, oh my God, I have the dorkiest story about how I decided I wanted to be a scientist in the first place. Um, and I could not make this up if I tried. <laughs> Um, I was in high school, and like so many people in my class, I was sort of swept along with this idea of I want to be a doctor, and I want to go to medical school. And so I took all my science classes, and I remember I was sitting in AP Bio, and we were reading something about ion transport across membranes, It was, I don't remember if it was plasma membrane or the uh, mitochondrial membrane, but I just remember looking at my textbook and seeing that there was a line in there that this happened by an unknown mechanism. And it blew my mind because it was just one of those moments where I was like, what do you mean science doesn't have the answers? And it was then and there that I was like, I want to be a scientist because I want to find answers. I want to learn how things work. And so, you know, starting off in academia, where you, you get to do that every day, but you kind of pick a lane that you're going to swim in, in the lab. And you might, you know, dabble in some other things, have some collaborations, but you, you sort of narrow your focus down to the question you want to answer. And then when I got to the core facility, it opened it up a little more but I was still in a physiology department. So I was somewhat limited in the types of questions people were asking. Then it opened up even further at uh, at Zeiss. And I got to talk to, that's where, you know, I got to talk to botanists and um, I got to look at meteorites and ancient uh, papyrus and things. Potato chips was a project I was working on. Um, wow. So it was like, it was a wide variety of things. And then I moved to Benchling and it was like, all of a sudden that scope just exploded because now it's everything from, you know, your typical biomedical fields to huge agricultural companies to... Uh, synthetic biology. That was something that I didn't really have a background in. So like looking at companies now that are synthesizing food in the laboratory. I mean, it's just, I'm such a geek for all of it. <laughs> and, it's, <laughs> and it's just every single day I'm introduced to a new customer where they're doing something super cutting edge that I've never heard of before and it's just like playground for science people
0: totally so getting back to your your graduate school work Mm -hmm. what what lane did you choose to swim in as far as (laughs) (laughs) like science that you were pursuing at that point in time
1: signal transduction that was always my passion so when I was uh So I'm originally from uh, Buffalo, New York, and I went to college at a small school in Buffalo uh, called Canisius College, and I had the opportunity there to work in a lab. I had a little research grant, and I got my first taste of working in the lab where I washed glassware for like the first six weeks. So I think it was kind of hazing maybe, but I, I certainly learned how to wash glassware really well. Um, But then I also had the opportunity to work at the Roswell Park Cancer Institute uh, during the summers. And so I worked in a lab there that was looking at intestinal epithelial differentiation. Uh, And it was my first exposure to true signal transduction research because they were looking at uh, the role of PKC Delta in this process. And I remember reading up on it and just thinking, oh my gosh, so much of life is controlled by the movement of phosphate. When you think about it, it's just everything about us is all about movement of phosphate and these huge interconnected pathways of switches and how they all talk to each other. And it just, it was my thing. I loved it. And so I knew then that I wanted to go into that world of signal transduction. And then it got narrowed down when I was in college because it took a, I took a class called medicinal botany, where we looked at all of these drugs, kind of what the history of them was, and then got into their mechanism of action, pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics. And I was just like, yep, this is it. I love it. And so I went looking for a pharmacology department where I could do signal transduction and that ended up being the university of Pittsburgh. And so I was working in a lab there where my project was, uh, insulin receptor signaling and it was signaling through, uh, the RAS ERK pathway. But what made it really cool was it wasn't just a linear sort of, RAS activates RAF and RAF activates MEK. There was this strong subcellular localization component. And even cooler, there was, a, and the subject of my thesis was, there was this little protein called KSR whose job it was to uh, scaffold the pathway. So it would grab to your MEK and your ERK shuttle it around the cell and then put it in the right place and so um yeah that was so that was what i what i worked on so subcellular localization of signal cascades
0: wow that's pretty interesting you had an idea already for what you wanted to focus on because i think a lot of a lot of grad students these days coming into some of these programs um don't necessarily know yet like I certainly you know I worked on synthetic transcription factors and gene Mm -hmm. editing but I hadn't like I didn't have a an appreciation for like what scientific question I really wanted to pursue and Mm -hmm. um, I kind of sorted that out my first year through the the lab rotations but Mm -hmm. that's neat that you you stepped in already knowing um, some of the questions you were interested in
1: Yeah, I was really lucky to just have, have access to that undergrad uh, research opportunity, and it just happened to, I got lucky. It struck a chord with me.
0: Absolutely. Um, So one of the, one of the aspects of science, and I think you touched on this with the textbook saying mechanism unknown, um, but is where, where things kind of start to break down in our understanding. And I think the subcellular components of some of these pathways are certainly one of those areas where um, you know, a lot of molecular biology is based on whole cell, like mm-hmm. understanding um, maybe different types of cells, but uh, not necessarily the subcellular components of that. Um, so when you say that you studied subcellular um, mechanisms of this pathway, were there particular organelles within the cell that you were um, looking at? And how, like in broad strokes, how did you go about understanding these tiny portions of the cell?
1: <laughs> yeah. So the the project was, um, so yes, in answer to your first question, uh, yes, it was uh, early endosomes, actually, was where the signaling event Actually happened, and the way this was originally uh, discovered was through microscopy. So it was doing some live cell imaging and looking, you know, tagging these uh, the proteins in the cascade and stimulating the cells and looking at where they went in the cell. And fortunately, endosomes are big enough that you can actually see them, so you're not below the resolution limit where you have to go to fancier. Uh, microscopy to find them. So we were able to see that these proteins started out on the membrane and then you could see them move into the inside of the cell and that ended up being on uh, on the surface of endosomes. And so we were that was where the project began. And then eventually we moved into uh, subcellular fractionations. So, I ran so many sucrose gradients. Oh my gosh. And just, uh, you know, grabbing the cells, cracking them open, and then just separating them out in a sucrose gradient to isolate the endosomes.
0: And then what would you do? You would just analyze the endosomes separately.
1: Good old fashioned Western blots.
0: Western blots. Okay. Yep.
1: Yeah. So just looking to to make sure you know, of course, can we identify them as characterize them as uh, early endosomes by you know diff like EEA one on the surface, and then uh, looking for our proteins of interest.
0: Very interesting. So you you've clearly had this experience working, you know, on the academic side, asking these questions that have never been answered, and and you know. Doing the kind of backbreaking work at the bench. Um, Can you talk about, like, you know, fast forward to today Mm -hmm. when you're approaching a new team that's um, going to use Benchling to record all of their experiments? Can you talk about the differences between, like, an academic team that you work with versus a team more on the industry side?
1: Interesting. I would say from a science perspective, okay, so it it depends because when you get into talking to companies, for example, if I'm talking to a a client, uh, a new client, the big difference is going to be, am I talking to someone in research and discovery or am I talking to someone on the development side? Because if I'm talking to someone who works in discovery, it's gonna feel very familiar to uh, an academic lab because that's where you actually have, you know, I don't wanna call it free form research, but it's a little closer to the free form research that you might find in an academic lab. But once you get into, a development lab, now you are so regulated by what you can and can't do, what you have to provide to the FDA, the types of um, structure that you have to have, the protections of your data, that there it's it's definitely not going to feel academic because it's going to be incredibly structured. And what's really interesting is I mean, from a, from the Benchling perspective is watching how we can accommodate both uh, extremes. So on one particular day, I might be talking to a group where I'm helping them sort of ad hoc design experiments and how to document them and capture their data in Benchling. And then later on in the day, I might be talking to someone who's using a validated environment where everything has to be so strict and they have to follow so many rules.
0: Interesting. And as far as the structure of something on the development side, is that something that the, the, the team that you're working with has to bring to the table or are there existing structures that Benchling already has that um, these development teams can utilize?
1: So there is a certain level of customization, but for the most part, if someone says that they have a particular type of, you know, what, what they would call GXP validation, where they have to work in a validated environment, um, that's pretty conserved, between uh between parties so you know we know that if someone's operating in a validated system that maybe if there's a new update to our software we can't automatically push it to them because it has to go to their validated environment so there there's going to be some a lot of similarities uh, between uh development clients but there's little variability too
0: interesting And like one other question which, you know, I don't assume you have the answer to, but I am curious about um, because I, you know, I work with a number of people who have worked at other biotech companies that utilize Benchling. And I know firsthand that um, these electronic lab notebooks are critical and a part of filing uh, investigational um, new drug applications Mm -hmm. with the FDA do you have a number or a sense of like how many INDs have been filed that utilize Benchling or I I know it's probably like.
1: Yeah, I think that's so one that I'd have to, I'd have to be, I'd have to be pretty careful. Yeah. I mean, there are some, let's just, let's just go there. Um, sure because we we work we have quite a few uh, large biotech companies and small biotech companies that we work with mm-hmm. so so yes that that happens I can't be any more specific than that
0: totally fine yeah I, I just uh, from the user end I think it's interesting um, again going from the paper notebooks to an electronic lab notebook and I think for me there's just so much more confidence in um what you know what's contained in the benchling like the registry mm-hmm. and the templates that are involved and the tracking and even the auditing like we used mm-hmm. to have to pass around the lab notebooks to get signatures and witnesses um and yeah it, like i i think that's part of what is Exciting to me about Benchling as a resource for scientists is that um, it smooths out that process a lot and I think makes it um, even easier for some of these early stage companies to uh, mm-hmm. move forward with their interactions with the FDA. So it's just kind of a bit of curiosity on my part. Um, so, one question I, I've been asking mm-hmm. this you know, in light of COVID and everything, I think um, it has mutated how we think of ourselves as scientists and, and our role. So I was wondering mm-hmm. if you could talk a little bit about um, how COVID has impacted you and how you view your role, um, you know, just within within the broader context of, of our society right now and also how, um, how your job at benching Fits into that, or doesn't fit
1: into that. I definitely fit into that, and I can I can elaborate. Um, it's it, I I consider myself very fortunate, as do uh, everyone else who, uh, or as does everyone else who works at Benchling, that we really haven't been negatively impacted by COVID. Uh, we're very lucky. We very early on, the leadership at Benchling decided that we were going to go to full work from working remotely, and we're just really adamant about protecting uh, the team. And so, all travel was canceled, all on-site visits. So we just have gone to a fully a fully remote model. So for my day-to-day success at my job. I miss being in the office certainly, but it hasn't affected uh, the ability to do my job. And I, again, I can't say enough how I, I recognize the for you know how fortunate I am in that, and that we've still been able to serve our customers even without being able to physically be there. What's really interesting about my experience uh, with COVID is the role that um, benchling has played. Um, And so as you've you've mentioned, so Benchling has an electronic lab notebook. We also have uh, sample tracking applications. We have result tracking applications. And we can really capture the process of a particular lab workstream, capture it from within the notebook also access all of the sample tracking applications. So through, and you also mentioned our templating, we can create a very templatized approach to a work stream. The reason that I bring that up is because when COVID kind of exploded, um, our leadership at Benchling announced Uh, that we are pro bono initiative, where what the company did was offer full access to our platform and to um, someone like me on the professional services team to come in and do a very rapid implementation of a COVID testing workstream. So uh, we got a lot of uh, companies and a lot of labs that uh, contacted us. And so we would dispatch someone to work on a project where, and I, I did quite a few of these myself, where basically I would talk to the team, find out, okay, how are you handling the samples? What does your workflow look like? Because I mean, there's not a lot of variability there I mean they're going to be doing a PCR approach so they're going to have to get the sample, the swabs in, they're going to have to do an extraction, they're going to have to you know get ready for their PCR and then they're going to have to track the samples. Well what we did as a company is just offer services in helping these labs that had never done this kind of work before helping them through benchling. So we would just for free build up Uh, notebook templates that would capture their process, help them write scripts to bring data in directly from the hospitals, help them send results back out to the hospitals and just streamline that testing process so that we could all get back to normal faster. And so we rolled out uh, quite a few of these projects and I think Last time I checked, we're closing in on uh, 1.5 million COVID tests that have passed through BenchLink software. Wow.
0: That's phenomenal. So, yeah. <laughs> what an incredible service. I, I, I saw this in the notes, you know, before we met, but I, mm-hmm. I had no idea the extent of it. And I mean, you know, again, just from the reproducibility standpoint, the fact that you guys are able to provide this expertise and sample tracking um it just seems like such a great resource and I appreciate you and Benchling for offering this I don't know whose decision it was but I think um certainly an amazing one for for many people so
1: yeah that came right from the leadership at uh at Benchling so the the founders of our company um and they just they, they said that we wanted, we wanted to help. And Benchling is very much a company that wants to help. Like I've never encountered a, a group of people who were more motivated to just serve the scientific community. And I know that sounds like a line that you would <laughs> say, but it it's completely genuine. And so seeing that then, you know, just repurposing Uh, resources within the company into, I mean, we were not making money off of this. We were taking people who normally would be working with customers and then, you know, sending them out and saying, all right, here's a lab from X university that wants to repurpose their tools to test COVID and let's get them up and running. And um, yeah, it was just incredibly rewarding work and um, I can imagine, yeah
0: along the lines of benchling wants to help mm-hmm. does the company have uh any particular motto ethos or principles that that you guys live by or is it more of just you know because some companies are very much like these are our cultural values and let's mm-hmm. put it on the wall and other companies it's more of it's just an organic thing of like, we want to help scientists. So I'm curious.
1: Well, the, the, I would say the, I mean, the, the goal of Benchling, the raison d'etre of the company is to accelerate the life sciences. So that, that is our, uh, that's our goal. And it really sort of encompasses everything we do, because if it's, you're trying to find a particular sample, well, if we make that easier for you, then you can get to the hard stuff faster. If we can templatize your work stream, you can do the work and we can help with the busy work. If you need to talk to a collaborator on the other side of the world and you want to you know, you want to work on something together, you don't have to email back and forth you can be simultaneously collaborating on the same page in your electronic lab notebook, and you can instantly see the data that's, uh, uh, that's been uploaded. So it, it really, just everything we do is all about accelerating the sciences. Now to your point about leadership principles, yes, we, we have them. I don't think I've ever been in an environment where they're taken so seriously like, it's not just a thing on the wall. It's not just a poster of like a kitten hanging on a tree saying, hang in there. Like these, (laughs) these are real and we, we live by them. And it's, I mean, they're, they're just simple. And like, for example, one of them is obsess over customers. And that's something that we take really seriously. Like it's, it's not just we're working with these people. It's while I'm working with my customer, I'm obsessed about making them successful. And so we we have, um, as I said, we have quite a few. I think of all of them, the one that struck me the most was uh, admit mistakes. And... It's a, the company culture at Benchling is very much the kind of place where if something goes wrong, if someone makes a mistake, it's not a punitive environment. It's a, okay, let's learn from what happened. How can we grow from this? How can we make sure that this doesn't happen again? And that comes from the very, very top of our leadership. At our first retreat that I ever went to, like the VPs were going around and talking about, you know, one got up and said, well, here's an interaction that I had that didn't go very well. And then here's what happened because of it. And just in front of the whole company, just owning something that didn't go well. And then talking about how it was, how it was repaired. And I was just floored because it's not often that you find that environment where your leaders will freely admit to mistakes and then just use it as a learning point for everyone in the company.
0: That's really admirable. And, it, and you know, I think it gets back to this idea that when you have, um, such strong principles that um, are really lived across all levels of the company, it can um, really make things run efficiently, but also um, create an environment that people want to be in and want to, you know, spend spend their lives working in. Right.
1: Mm-hmm. To that point, one of our one of our other principles is unite around the mission, and that mission being, you know, accelerating the the life sciences. And that's something that is really palpable when you walk into, well, of course, we don't have an office anymore because COVID, but when you walk into that environment, whether you're talking to someone who's in the accounting department or someone in finance or someone in legal or someone in my, you know, implementation team, the sales team, everyone just kind of feels that we are united around helping science. And it's, it's extraordinary.
0: That's awesome. Um, You, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about the lab notebook being something that, you know, someone on the other side of the world could look at and Mm -hmm. see the data in real time is, is Benchling a global company? I like, I don't have any um, window into the reach of Benchling. Like how Mm -hmm. many countries are you involved
1: with? Oh, I wish I had that number for you. <laughs> um, yes, we are, a, we are a global company. Um, we have, um, the company started in San Francisco. Uh, so just from a where is Benchling kind of um, perspective to your answer, uh, we started in San Francisco. The next office that opened was in Boston. And uh, last year, we opened an office in uh, Zurich. So of course, right now it's a virtual office, but at the rate things are going, they're probably gonna have a physical office before the rest of us will. Um, But yeah, so right now we, uh, we have offices in Europe. We have clients in Europe, in Asia, in South America, in Africa, um, so we are, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure if we have a client in Australia, we may, uh, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I don't know the answer to that, but I can definitely speak to North America, South America, uh, Asia, Europe, and, uh, Africa was leted, added last year.
0: Wow. That's amazing. And I assume your COVID pro bono efforts extend as well beyond the United States? like
1: Yes, so uh, w- uh, we do have uh, c- uh, some very active COVID testing uh, going through Benchling in uh, Copenhagen. And we worked with uh, groups in Italy. We worked with groups in uh, South America, uh, in Chile, in uh, Argentina, Mexico. Uh, and then all over uh, North America and Canada.
0: Wow. Um, I don't know if this is something you can get into as an implementation scientist, but do you have a sense of how Benchling and in particular, some of these COVID protocols and maybe templates, are allowing for better reproducibility across sites. Like one of the questions, and again, you don't have to answer this and I totally understand if you either can't talk about it or don't have insight into this. Mm -hmm. One of the lingering questions I think a lot of people have around the qPCR testing is um, cycle threshold. Mm -hmm. And it's become clear that different areas, different testing sites are using different parameters for the cycle threshold limit. And mm-hmm. I'm, I'm someone who designs qPCR assays regularly for things like lentiviral load, or gene expression. Um, and, you know, I'm well familiar with things like having having a standard curve that we're able to compare the samples to and say, Okay, this sample has approximately this number of molecules present Um, so in your perspective um, do you think that there's good reproducibility of those types of protocols across sites or do you see a lot of variability in um, basically the limit threshold that people are using
1: interesting i can't say that i can assign numbers to you know, what CT values uh, different labs are, are working with. I guess the way I would answer that is the, the actual definition of their and design of their assay uh, for COVID testing um, uh, is before benchling comes in. So we would come in after they would have their assay worked out. And many of the companies and labs that we're working with have uh, applied for emer- emergency use authorizations from the government. And based on what I've read about those requirements, they have to submit all of their uh, control validation samples and things uh, ahead of time. Uh, so. I guess that's a very long way of saying I don't know. No, way. I don't have enough. I don't have enough data to answer your question. I'm sorry. I
0: love that answer. That that's that's an answer I like to give. I don't have enough data to answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's just something that again it's kind of lingering in the back of my mind lately. Um, when we found out that certain testing sites we're using a cycle threshold of say 40 cycles, which is quite late um, versus 35 or 30. I think I heard that India uses a cycle threshold of 25. So Mm. you can imagine that the rate of samples that are being called positive or negative can fluctuate quite a bit depending on what that cycle threshold is. So
1: um,
0: I think it's something you know that people are curious about and it hasn't really been fully elucidated yet um what the standard should be i mm-hmm. think um which is which is interesting but that's good to know benching comes in after that
1: mm-hmm. they've
0: already determined these things they've um you know i have a couple of friends who have set up these testing facilities now one in the bay and one here in seattle mm-hmm. and um you know they certainly have to, to file a lot of paperwork and <sighs> Um, make sure that but they're they are- doing the good work. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely, and I think both both sites are utilizing, um, you know, uh, kind of new um, extraction methods that mm-hmm. reduce the cost of the process. And a lot of
1: labs are even going uh, for no extraction.
0: Yeah, I heard that.
1: That's mm-hmm. awesome.
0: So, so it's like a direct into, I forget what, what, like cells to CT or something. There's like certain
1: reagents. Yeah, like to there. be honest, I haven't dug in too much to what what they're doing at the bench there. It was just one of those moments where I was working with a new client and said, okay, well, here's your here's your sample preparation. Let's talk about your extraction. And they were like, oh no, 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 we're not doing extraction. So um, I the, I th- I think for that one they weren't actually able to tell me it was a little bit proprietary of what they were doing.
0: Interesting. Yeah, it, it's I, I'm excited. You know that a lot of different groups are thinking hard about this problem, and even within the um, within the actual PCR component. Uh, some groups are utilizing things like next generation sequencing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, which is, is pretty exciting. And I, I'm always fascinated by increasing throughput, right? Like um, yeah. going from low throughput to high throughput I think is really important for, for a lot of these uh, scientific methods. Um, okay, well, getting away from, from COVID Is there anything? I think
1: that's something we'd all like to do, right? (laughs) (laughs)
0: Um, Is there anything, and I don't know if it's something at Benchling that you can talk about, um, or maybe, you know, from your past working more on the academic side, Mm -hmm. is there anything that stands out to you across your career that was really exciting, uh, a moment that um, you found out something new, or you felt like empowered by your ability to teach others about this, you know, esoteric concept or something.
1: How much time do you have? (laughs) I think
0: think we have about 10 to 15 minutes left. So it's up to you (laughs) how, you know, just just go for it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, oh my gosh. I would have such a hard time narrowing that down I've worked with such amazing people doing amazing things. Um, I guess, mm, wow, I'm floundering on this one.
0: No worries. Maybe something more recent if, you know, and broad strokes, like if it's confidential or anything like that. Um,
1: That, That's what I'm uh, kind of, I guess I can, I can talk about something that I'll never forget. How about that? Great. Uh, this was while I was at Harvard and uh, where the imaging facility that I was working in was right across the street from the Divinity School. And I got a call one day from a, a researcher at the Divinity School who said, I have a piece of papyrus that I'd like to bring into the facility to have you uh, help me image it because I'd like to authenticate it. And so I was like, sure, I've never looked at papyrus, why not? Uh, Side note, papyrus looks like plywood under a microscope. I was a little surprised by that. But uh, so this very nice researcher came in, and she had a case with her, and there were these glass panels in it. And inside were these um, pieces of papyrus that were about this big. And I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. I can't read anything on it. It was in Coptic. And, uh, and so she said, you know, can we take a look? So we tried various uh, ways to image this, just taking images from different angles. And so I started asking her about what these were. And she told me that this one piece of papyrus was an incredibly controversial piece of text. And it's this thing that's referred to as the gospel of Jesus's wife. And I had no idea what this was about. So she told me that basically this is one of the only physical pieces of text in existence that refer to Jesus being married and having a wife. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's interesting from many perspectives. Then she goes to tell me that this is this piece of papyrus, is I, I think it was third from the third century AD. And like at that point, my hands start shaking that I'm holding this. And so we're looking at this, and she starts telling me about her work to authenticate this, and what her life has been like since she came into possession of this particular piece of papyrus. Um, She's like, you know, the Vatican knows who I am. She's like, because this is so controversial in the church. She's like, I have an emergency button in my office in case a terrorist comes in and just this, this little piece of papyrus was so controversial that this scientist had an emergency call button to security in case she was threatened. And it was sitting there on my mic, not mine, but on the microscope that I was working on. And it was just for these couple words that were in there. And so we were just, I was just helping her to authenticate it. And so um, some of the pictures that I took of that, actually I got a byline on NBC news. Uh, she was kind enough to credit me for the, uh, for the imaging work. And um, I believe it went on to, uh, to be authenticated. Wow. Uh, but it was just one of those moments where I was holding just this incredibly old thing this one it wasn't like I was looking at a zebra fish or something it was I was holding this piece of papyrus something I never thought I'd put under a microscope <laughs> and just kind of listening to her stories about the impact of this sample it was it was just one of those moments that I'll never forget
0: wow what a story I I, I don't think I've ever had any any experience like that and that that's Fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us. Um, and you said the text was written in what language? Coptic. Coptic. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, was she able to do, you know, other types of analysis to validate how old it was and everything? I. I...
1: Yeah, I think those were, those were underway. Um, and what we were doing was there were some, what I ended up calling ancient ketchup, because there were these funny like stains on it that looked like um, maybe sap, or I mean, it even could have looked like food. I mean, it was really hard to tell. So we were just trying all different types of imaging modalities to see, could we detect some fluorescence in there at a particular wavelength that might point at what that was There were some areas of the papyrus that were very thin, right under the important characters. And so they were trying to investigate whether that was, you know, like where it had been falsified or some, um, it was just purely exploratory uh, at that point. But wow. it was definitely not. I mean, as someone who spent most of her days in the facility imaging zebrafish or mouse <laughs> brains or things like that, here's an ancient piece of papyrus. Um, not not on the list of things I thought I'd see that day.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is so cool, <laughs> and definitely something I would just like. I, you know, science is this fascinating field and word that um, encompasses so many things, and I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what, what makes it thrilling is that sometimes we just never know what we're going to encounter and, um, and the ways in which we're kind of like our minds are expanded. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really neat.
1: That's what makes it fun.
0: I know. Right. Well, I think that's a great, uh, story for us to end on, um, unless there's anything else you want to share with us, um, before we wrap things up.
1: I don't think so. This has been so much fun.
0: So fun. And thank you so much for jumping in, you know, in the early days of the podcast and um, sharing some of your experiences at Benchling and on the academic side. And it's nice to meet another lifelong learner.
1: That's the only way to be.